Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. When I look out at the world today, I'm increasingly concerned that as scary as this period feels, between Russia's two-year-long war in Ukraine and Hamas's ongoing war with Israel, that all of this period will come to be seen as the calm before the storm, as the opening chapter in something much darker and more out of control. Should China decide to move against Taiwan in some way in the coming months or years, then we'll have three major theaters of war and U.S. involvement in all three. And maybe by then they won't feel like these separate, discrete battles, but perhaps one global one. Now, this should be alarming for everyone, and not just because war is bad, and not just because the threat of nuclear weapons looms over many of these conflicts, but also because I'm not sure America is prepared or capable of winning. I think most Americans, in the last 50 years and certainly since the end of the Cold War, have lived the ultimate luxury. And that's the luxury of safety, of living in a time where peace and security are generally taken for granted. But as the world heats up, especially after October 7th, when a country that was largely understood to be a high-tech security fortress was overwhelmed by terrorists on motorcycle and truck and paraglider, I think a lot of Americans experienced a serious wake-up call. Could something like that happen here? Who is actually coming over our border? And if we had to fight for our country, who would actually show up? My guest today had been thinking about those questions long before the war in Ukraine or the war in Gaza began. Palmer Lucky is a 31-year-old software engineer and entrepreneur. At the age of 19, he founded the VR company Oculus, which was originally supposed to be sold as a VR prototype on Kickstarter for VR nerds and enthusiasts, but instead ended up being acquired by Facebook for more than $2 billion. Then, when he was 25, he founded Anderil Industries, a almost $9 billion company which develops drones, autonomous vehicles, subs and rockets, and software for military use. Catherine Boyle is also here. Catherine is a former Washington Post reporter turned venture capitalist. She's a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz and co-founder of the firm's American Dynamism Project, which invests in companies building to support the national interest. And last but not least, we have entrepreneur and investor Joe Lonsdale. Joe is a co-founder of Palantir, along with Peter Thiel and others, and he's a founder and general partner of the firm 8VC, which backed Anderil in its early days. Palmer, Catherine, and Joe are bullish on America, and they're bullish on the innovation needed to protect it from our enemies. And each one of them, in their way, is attempting to disrupt the defense marketplace to bring it Silicon Valley speed, creativity, and innovation, and basically to save America. Stay with us.
Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in America? It has more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers. Spring is right around the corner, and Fast Growing Trees is here with fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more to liven up your house and your yard. Fast Growing Trees makes it very easy to order online. Your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. So you can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home. You'll find the perfect fit for your climate and space, all without having to hire a landscaper or drive around to nurseries in your area. Fast Growing Trees has plant experts to talk about your soil type, landscape design, plant care, and anything else you might need. And this spring, Fast Growing Trees has the best deals online. They're offering up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use the code HONESTLY at checkout. Again, that's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com when you use the code HONESTLY at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code HONESTLY. This offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the country? It has more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers. Spring has finally arrived, and Fast Growing Trees is here with fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more to liven up your house and your yard. Fast Growing Trees makes it incredibly easy to order online. Your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. So you can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home. You'll find the perfect fit for your climate and space, all without having to hire a landscaper or to drive around to nurseries in your area. Fast Growing Trees has plant experts to talk about your soil type, landscape design, plant care, and everything else you might need. And this spring, Fast Growing Trees has the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code HONESTLY at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com when you use the code HONESTLY at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code HONESTLY. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Palmer, Catherine, and Joe, welcome to Honestly. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Really happy to have you. So I want to start by giving listeners a basic lay of the land here, because I think when most people think of startups, and maybe this is the problem, they think of people who make apps to get us things faster and cheaper. But you guys are all involved in a very different kind of startup. And I think most people will hear the phrase defense technology startup and think, what is that? Isn't it the job of government? to do defense. So to start, I would love each of you to just sort of give us the lay of the land of this space. So Palmer, let's start with you. I mean, I started Anderol because I felt that the United States did not have the tools that it needed to defend itself, its partners or its allies. And we were seeing an abdication of responsibility by our major technology companies to the ideal of working to protect ourselves and our allies. It's, it, you know, through, through U.S. history, this has never been the case. In U.S. history, our most innovative technology companies have always worked hand-in-hand -hand with our military to build the best technology 
possible so that we can stay ahead of our adversaries. And for the last couple of decades, that hasn't been true because the smartest people, instead of going to aerospace, they've been going into advertising optimization and search engine optimization. Instead of working for the national interest, our largest and most innovative technology companies are making their biggest revenue investment and manufacturing targets our largest strategic adversaries like China. And it's a really a totally untenable situation. That's why I started Anderl. I wanted to use the money that I had made, the expertise that I had to build a company that could get people out of the kind of useless tech industry, you know, maybe out of the money-making tech industry, I'd say, and into the defense technology industry, which is fundamentally about making the tools we need to make sure that the world continues on as it is or ideally gets a lot better. And our investment community has a bit of responsibility here too. The reason people think of startups as companies that build apps is because that's what investors wanted for the better part of a decade. That's what they told people they should be doing. That's what they gave them money to do. In fact, when I was raising money for Anderil, many of the venture capital firms we spoke with had explicit rules against investing in weapons or defense technology. That's why people have this concept. It's because the investment class also kind of bowed to China, bowed to anti-nationalist globalism, and it was really harmful for our country and our startup ecosystem. I'm so glad that's finally changing. KB, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. That's kind of like a perfect transition to Catherine. Why was that the case? Basically what you pointed to, which was that America got very comfortable in the early part of the 20th century. There was sort of this view that, you know, history was over, we lived in sort of a secure future. No one really wanted to work on these problems. There was so much opportunity in the consumer landscape. I also think Silicon Valley in some ways had sort of a bit of a monoculture in terms of there wasn't really anyone who had ever seen what the Department of Defense was doing, which is really ironic because Silicon Valley was built off of the defense community. It was built off of defense investment, hand in hand, the military worked to build Silicon Valley. And I do think the consumer internet sort of was this, this brief moment where people stopped realizing how important defense technology was, the need to work hand in hand with government. And I moved to Silicon Valley from Washington in 2014, and I know others have had similar experiences where it was really a culture shock to see how little focus was put on the issues that Washington cared about, to see how little kind of interest there was in working with the Department of Defense. And I think we sort of hit a heightened moment. It was actually 2017 when Google, you know, one of the largest companies in America, one of sort of the, the most important companies in America, said they would not work with the Department of Defense on AI, on the Project Maven project, because they didn't think that it was ethical. So I think that was the moment where, where I, you know, I know Palmer woke up, I know Joe saw it. Like, there were a number of people who were working in Silicon Valley who said, if our best and brightest American companies are not willing to work with the DOD, we have a huge crisis. And that, I think, is when the table started turning in Silicon Valley. It sort of woke up investors. It woke up founders that we need to build a new defense technology renaissance in order to solve this crisis. So if if Silicon Valley has broadly been a monoculture, you guys are sort of, forgive me, and I, I've played this role myself in a certain sense in the press, like skunks of the garden party. All of you are involved in American defense in some way, but none of you have a military background. So I'm curious how you came to this view of the problem and why it was so urgent, given that none of you had ever served in the military. And maybe, Joe, I'll kick that one to you. You know, Barry, a lot of the best innovation, a lot of the most important things that happen by entrepreneurs is done by outsiders. You know, I, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I was, if anything, a bit of an insider on kind of the computer science scene and tech scene. And, you know, you'd hear stories when I was going to Stanford 
about how the NSA and the DOD were like 20 years ahead, 15 years ahead in these big breakthroughs versus even the very top places at MIT and Stanford and Harvard. They were that far ahead in the 70s. And we kind of assumed they still were. And in my case, I was at PayPal, and PayPal's big challenge was the Russian and Chinese mafia were stealing most of our money. They put eight of our competitors you know, bankrupt. We've been taking things online. And we got to know the guys in charge of this. It's a secret service in the FBI. And they started asking us for advice otherwise. And this was kind of fun. You know, I always watched a lot of James Bond movies as a kid. We think this is kind of interesting to help these people. Uh, and it's like, let's go and work on it with them. And we teach them what to do and teach them how to use tech. And, you know, and then 9-11 happened. And then we saw the U.S. government spend tens of billions of dollars on stuff that, frankly, was just stupid compared to how Silicon Valley worked. They were way behind. Silicon Valley had gotten way ahead. And this was a really painful shock for me because I am a patriot. I'm proud of how strong the U.S. is. I always kind of assumed the U.S. was way ahead in these areas, and it wasn't. And we realized, wow, we have to actually get involved, take some of the things we've learned about investigative technology, about new possibilities in technology, and go after this. And then the second wave, as we said, it was a combination of seeing the best and brightest in China were being forced you know, to work with the Chinese military at the same time that our best and brightest, as Catherine said at Google and otherwise, were saying, no, we're not going to. And that was a big wake-up call, that not only do we need Palantir's a software prime, but we needed some real defense prime to work with hardware and software to get in. And that's when I think you know Palmer and three of our, three of my former colleagues from Palantir built Yandrill with Palmer and helped start it. And we started getting involved in building other companies as well. And then we said, wow, we have to do this. It's a key for America. Joe, can you just define what a prime is? Yeah, when we talk about a prime, it's a group who are in charge of the big defense contract. So if the government's going to go and have like a, you know, spend $100 billion on something, there's a prime in charge of it. Historically, that's been like Raytheon or Lockheed or Northrop Grumman. And then they have subprimes underneath them that are helping them with these projects. And, you know, all the primes were kind of formed in the 1990s from a merger of everything else. So you had a bunch of big companies. And then when we got to what we thought was maybe like close to the end of history, like Catherine says, we're not going to need as many of uh, these companies. They all merged and we have a lot fewer companies that are like big conglomerates were formed. Those are the big primes. They were all kind of merged into each other in the 90s. Okay, well, speaking of primes, any startup is hard, right? We have a media company here with 20 people as of today. That's hard enough. But then I think about the space that you guys are trying to operate in, and I see just unbelievably entrenched interests, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Joe mentioned a bunch of them before, but also the fact that there is a very limited number of customers, right? If I go and build Instagram or I go and build Uber Eats, the beauty is that I can go directly to normal people and reach tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of them at once. If I'm going and I'm developing a killer drone, there's like three governments, I guess, that I could sell that to. Tell us about trying to build a startup, build something new in such an entrenched landscape where the customer is so limited? Well, I mean, what's interesting is it's it's not even that the customer is limited. A lot of it really just is expanding their minds to do things that have always been possible. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give you the counter example. There's a lot of startups that claim the reason they don't get traction with the DOD is because the DOD doesn't have the right contracting authorities. The DOD doesn't have the legal ability to fund them the way that they wanted. And often that just isn't true. It's an excuse for not making a product that is compelling enough. The DoD does have every authority they need, or at least most of them. They can do the right thing, but they have to be willing to do things the right way and to take risks that they're not used to taking, to bet on small companies instead of old companies. And oftentimes doing the right thing the thing that to them seems very risky is actually the safest path of all. And so to, to me, I think 
it's not so much that the customer is limited as their thinking has been limited. On the other hand, I think that's finally changing. The way things have been done in the past is not the way they can be done in the future. They just can't. Why do you think things have shifted? What was the moment where you, you've all sort of mentioned things are changing in a positive way? It was specifically the F-35 program going over the $1 trillion mark for that program. And it seems kind of arbitrary. There's a lot of other things you might point to as more influential in kind of the DOD wonky politician circles. But for the average person, it was the realization that we spent a trillion dollars building a weapon system. Well, preparing for this conversation, I, the theme of sort of brokenness or erosion, those are the words that kind of kept coming to mind. And I was broadly thinking about it in sort of three buckets. One is the erosion of the actual things, right? The equipment is outdated. It costs too much money. It's monopolized by these big defense contractors that are out of date and extremely slow. So like the erosion of actual things. Then I was thinking about the erosion of... American people's faith and trust in the U.S. military, a subject I want to get into more deeply, and then the erosion of our belief and perhaps especially belief of elites in the goodness or the justness or the importance of American power itself. KB, is that broadly right to you? What what am I missing in that story? And then I'd like to sort of go into each of those in more detail. So the one thing I think you're missing that I actually think underpins the entire conversation we're having, but is not talked about enough, is the talent crisis. And that is not my term. Um, it was called a quiet crisis actually in the 1980s by Paul Volcker. You know, he was the chair of the Federal Reserve. And then he was tapped to serve as the head of a commission on the crisis inside the civil service, inside the bureaucracy of government. And there was a view that, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, the best and brightest American minds, they served their country. They had all served in some capacity in government. Oftentimes that was through the draft, but there was still status in going into the bureaucracy, into the civil service of the country and working inside of the government. And that's very important to have talented people working as part of the bureaucracy, not as political appointees, but working and serving their careers inside government. And the view in the 1980s was that it was already eroding, that the delta between the private sector and the public sector in this country was already becoming too wide. And the thing that they, they sort of pointed out was, you know, if the degradation of the civil service is that you go to the DMV and it takes you eight hours to get your driver's license, that's not a tragedy. It's annoying, but it's not a tragedy. But when doors start falling off of airplanes, that is a tragedy. And that is something that the government has to focus on, is getting talent inside the government that can help with these regulatory issues that can make sure that those tragedies don't happen. And the reason why this is really relevant to our standing defense industrial base and to the primes conversation that we're having is because the same talent crisis that hit the government in the 80s also hit the prime contractors where there is a war for the best and brightest minds in this country. And they used to go into Lockheed Martin. They used to go into Raytheon. They used to build, you know, the F-35, as Palmer was pointing out, like the best engineers who wanted to work on the hardest problems used to go to the defense primes. And for the last 30 years, they've been coming to Silicon Valley. For a while, they were working on apps. But because of people like Joe, because of people like Palmer, because of SpaceX, Palantir, and Anduril, a lot of the best talent is now coming to defense startups and the government has to figure out how to work with startups. Otherwise, we have trapped talent pools that are not providing the government with what it needs to survive. I wonder if you can help diagnose what the root of that talent problem is. If the problem is that it used to be high status and admirable to go and join 
the companies that we were mentioning before, and now it's high status to go and develop, you know, the like button. How do you shift that? And I've been thinking a lot these days about something my much smarter wife said, which is that all of the wealthy people, or maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, have all of the noblesse and none of the oblige. In other words, in another generation, some of sort of the kings of industry of American life felt a sense of civic obligation. And I was looking last night at Mark Zuckerberg's Instagram, and I don't mean to pick on him because I could pick a hundred, I could pick a thousand other names. But, you know, I feel like the world is on the precipice and I'm looking at stories of him feeding his cows macadamia nuts on his Hawaiian compound. And it just feels like it's so removed from the actual heavy issues facing this country right now. And him and others are in in a real position to make a difference about it. And I wonder how you think we remedy that. First of all, how did we lose the sense of oblige, the sense of civic obligation among our elites, and how could we get it back? So I have a lot of theories on this, because actually, like, they came up with a report that said, hey, the problem's economic. The delta between what you can earn in the private sector and the public sector is growing so dramatically that it's hard to tell young people who are really ambitious, hey, you can't go into the private sector. The other thing that the Volcker report pointed out was that after the draft, all of those people had served their country in a different war, every single one of them. If you go to Wall Street now or if you go to the private sector, the number of veteran CEOs is abysmal. It is very, very rare to see people who've served their country in some way then going into Wall Street or going into the corporate world and succeeding. And so we have this huge delta between what it means to serve your country inside of government or inside of the military and what it means to work in the private sector that did not exist before 1973, before the revocation of the draft. So I do think that cultural difference, and and this was actually pointed out in the Volcker Report, has led to just young people not necessarily having a relationship with the government that they used to have a relationship with before that changed. Well, it used to be that everybody knew somebody who had served and it was probably a close family member. And that's now changing. You have kids who don't know anybody who's ever served in the military, would never consider joining themselves, and none of their role models have ever served in the military. And that leads to a bit of a disconnect. In my case, I worked at an Army Affiliate Research Center before starting Oculus, the ICT Mixed Reality Lab, on a few things, including an Army project called Brave Mind, which treated veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, that was kind of the first exposure I had to how the military developed technology, how they used technology to solve problems. But like, uh, I, I was one of those people where me and all my friends, we didn't really have any direct experience with the the military in our in our in our regular lives. It it, it wasn't something that we even had a strong negative thought about. It's that we didn't think about it at all. Joe, do you want to weigh in here? Yeah, you know, I don't know if it's it's so much as an oblige problem on the talent side, Barry. I agree that, that not enough people are connected into the military-industrial kind of world to understand it. Not enough people have enough pride in it. But what's happened, as Catherine was saying, as the quality of the civil service went down, they've actually lost the ability to understand and identify talent. It's actually it's quite scary. I'll, I'll be at conferences with people who like run the NSA, and I'll see who they're recruiting now at the NSA for certain things they're doing. And you know, famously, these guys were the same guys who were way ahead of the rest of us 50 years ago, and they're not even aware of the fact that they have third and fourth tier talents. And it's really scary to me because China and Iran and a lot of other bad guys do have access to some of the very, very top technologists on their side. So if we're not having the best on our side compete with them, then that's going to cause a lot more war. 
We have extraordinary manufacturing talent. We have extraordinary engineering talent. It's just not in the places it used to be. And I think, again, this is the thing that gives me a lot of hope, is that if the DOD can figure out how to work with startups like Anduril, like the new companies that young people who are really talented, who are skilled in both manufacturing and software, which is a whole other component of this that we should get into, but if they can figure out how to work with these new pockets of talent, we, we are leading the world. It's game over for everyone else. So like, I, I am not as uh, pessimistic as, as some of the media is, as, as some of sort of the, the sort of red flags that, that I think point, people point to. I do think the recruiting crisis in the military is a problem of status. It's a problem of, of, of a lot of compounding factors in America. But in terms of like the best technological ability, like we still lead the world in technology. Now we, we concede that to the CCP and we have to be careful that we don't, but right now we are still leading the world. Our best people are definitely the best. I, I'd say, like, one of the things I'm concerned about coming out of, you know, like Oculus, where we're making millions of virtual reality headsets, is that when it comes to scaled production of things, we really have ceded things to China. Like, like the, you know, building rockets is great, and building, you know, dozens of rockets or hundreds of rockets is great, but uh, when it comes to building millions of things, like, China is extraordinarily good, partly because we've made it a bad career path to be, for example, a manufacturing process engineer in the United States. No talented kid is gonna come out of high school and say, oh, you know what I wanna figure out how to do? I wanna figure out how to effectively run plastic injection molding machines. But you look at China, and that's actually a great career path for them. There's plenty of work, plenty of countries willing to buy things in and mass from them. And so one of the other issues that we've created through you know, global trade is like, yeah, maybe we lowered the price of a lot of goods, but we also have made a lot of critical career paths totally non-viable for smart Americans. And so, you know, I, we, we got to figure out how we can make those viable career paths for people again. Uh, and, and that's true, even if we have to do it artificially, or we're just not going to have those capabilities. Since KB brought up software, let's talk about that for a second, because when most civilians like me think about military defense, I think about F-35s, I think about giant hulking ships, I think about big, heavy things, strong guys with guns. And you guys, I think, are suggesting that that's sort of an outdated view of what military defense should actually look like. Palmer, one of your core beliefs is that software can be just as powerful as physical things. And, and I would love for you to explain that to listeners, because I think it's a challenging belief, especially in light of what we've seen over the past two years and over the past three months. Sure. I mean, I believe that software is the thing that allows you to build truly differentiated and advantaged vertically integrated products, you know, with hardware and software and everything in between. I'm not one of those guys who thinks, you know, software alone is going to stop war. But I do think that software, really good software, like AI control software that is very good at fusing sensor data, figuring out how to attack things and how to kill them effectively, is what allows you to build totally new types of weapons that can't exist without that software. Think about the difference between building aircraft that have to keep a person alive inside of the aircraft and can only maneuver at the limits of what a human can handle versus a system that can think and move as fast as a computer can survive. That's a totally new type of thing. Imagine proliferation of systems. Remote controlled airplanes like the Predator are great, but at the end of the day, you need multiple people who are controlling and managing each of those. You will never be able to manage thousands or tens of thousands of them in a given area because of that limit of, you know, that ratio of machines to people. If I can automate those, 
I can potentially be deploying millions of robotic systems in a given area and have them performing at a level that a human piloted or remote piloted system never could achieve. And this is true across the air. This is true underwater. This is true in space. This is true on land. This is even true underground. And so I, I think that's where that, that's the power of software, enabling you to build weapon systems, which are hardware that couldn't exist otherwise, that are much cheaper at much larger scale than the things that are designed to keep people alive and operate at the limits of humans. For the doomers that are listening, or you're just for the people who hear AI and think ex machina or Terminator or you know whatever the caricature is in pop culture, make the case that we should be bullish on AI as a thing. Right, Because for the person who's been inside a Tesla on a perfectly sunny day and the windshield wipers are going, they might think uh, the idea of AI in a rocket or in a military vehicle is scary because if windshield wipers are going off, that's maybe inconvenient but not a big deal. But if a lethal weapon goes off at the wrong time because of poor AI, that's a much bigger one. Well, if you're worried about what AI does – Wait till you see what people do. <laughs> I mean, like, that, that's kind of the bar, right? Like, if we could prove that self-driving cars are, let's say, 100 times safer than a person is, that's probably the right thing to do, even if from time to time, just due to there being millions of them out there, there are occasionally failures. That will happen. But what, what you see is you people, people take this kind of emotional appeal. Well, you know, what if AI did something wrong? And what if one time it, it makes the wrong decision about what to blow up. I don't think that that gives you a moral pass to ignore every other situation where it could have provably saved lives. There's people who are pushing to say that AI should not be in weapon systems, that it shouldn't be allowed, that it should never be allowed to decide when to pull the trigger or when to blow up. Where's the moral high ground in making landmines that can't tell the difference between a Russian tank and a school bus full of kids? Like, what? Is, is, are, are we really going to feel better if we force ourselves to make every system as dumb as possible to meet some arbitrary point about AI not being involved? I don't think so. I think that it's actually our responsibility to figure out how to use AI responsibly to maximize the amount of pain we inflict on the bad guys while minimizing the amount of collateral damage. And it won't, it won't always be perfect. But we do need to make sure that people are always responsible for how these weapon systems are deployed. And my goal is not for it to be perfect. It's for it to be orders of magnitude better than what is currently happening. And that is totally doable. So I think no one would be surprised that, you know, Amnesty International, given its politics, has a stop killer robots campaign. But I was sort of surprised when I noticed that Elon Musk, you know, SpaceX has come up already a few times in this conversation, signed a pledge to, quote, neither participate in nor support the development, manufacture, trade or use of lethal autonomous weapons. Steel man the case for me. Right. What would lead someone like Elon Musk to sign a pledge like that? What is the worst case scenario that someone like him is, is motivated by in that case. I'll interrupt first and say Elon's just wrong. People can be wrong. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, your original question of why is AI so important or is why is leading the AI race so important? And, you know, the, the, the simple answer is China is not having this debate. Russia is not having this debate. I actually think Palmer's the one who pointed out that I believe it was 2016 or 2017 that the quote, he who leads an AI leads the world came from Vladimir Putin. Yeah, the country that leads this in this sphere will become the ruler of the entire world, was what Vladimir Putin said before Andorra was founded. 
Let me put it this way. I wish we had leaders who were so cogent when it comes to the impact of AI on defense. And I wish that they had been saying that nearly 10 years ago. But, but I think one thing that is, that is often lost on people is that technological supremacy is what has led to the growth and dynamism of the United States since the 1880s. And the thing that is most scary is the last 40 years, the way that China has kept up with American innovation is by stealing our intellectual property from our great companies, replicating it, giving it to the developing world in the global south. And that is exactly what they are trying to do with artificial intelligence. And so when you hear regulators in Europe or regulators who've never built anything say, we need to put a pause on a technology that we don't understand, no one in Russia and China is saying that. Palmer, I go on the Anderol website and I read about things like AI drones, like autonomous vehicles for the air and sea. Like, tell us about what these things actually are and what capabilities you guys have already developed. Yeah, I mean, we build vertical takeoff and landing AI-powered small, you know, micro fighter jets. We build robotic submarines that can dive deeper than manned submarines do that are much quieter, much longer range, and much cheaper to manufacture than a submarine that needs to keep a whole crew of people alive. We're also building aircraft that can collaborate hand-in-hand with manned aircraft so that you can have, you know, imagine a squadron of one or two human planes flying aided by dozens of autonomous aircraft that are able to soak up missiles or do targeting ahead of where you would ever want a person to keep that person safer and also make them much more lethal in that manned platform. You know, what we try to do at Anderol is find these areas where autonomy and artificial intelligence can make warfighters much more effective, where we can fill in holes that we currently have in uh, deterring our our adversaries. You know, get, getting back to something that we were just talking about before, you, you have like Amnesty International, you have all these United Nations organizations trying to ban lethal autonomous weapon systems. Look at the countries that are supporting those efforts. They are largely countries that do not share our interests. They are countries that want to cripple our ability to build these things because they don't want America to have the best tools. And it's amazing to me how people fall for this. We need to equip our people, young people, old people, and everybody in between with the understanding that the people pushing for bans on lethal autonomous weapon systems, the people at the top of that push are not just well-meaning but wrong-minded people. They're not people who have good ideas and just don't quite understand it. They understand exactly what will happen if Western countries do not build these systems, and that's why they're pushing to basically allow us to destroy ourselves. They would love to see us, like Europe has done, destroy ourselves with regulations and take ourselves out of the fight. We we have to be resistant to that. Imagine if during World War II, there had been a campaign to ban torpedoes, a campaign to ban bomber aircraft. Look at all the harm they cause. We need to uh, decide as a Western dem- democratic allies that we will not build bomber aircraft. I, it, it's crazy that people fall for this. Let's say I completely buy that. And Obviously, countries like China or Russia or these, you know, UN type organizations would have that motivation. But that doesn't explain Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak and all of the other people who are calling in various realms for pauses on the development of AI. Are they just useful idiots? Well, I mean, Joe, I don't know if you could talk about this, but you're probably familiar with the concept of the difference between an agent and an asset. You can have people who are literally controlled by foreign adversaries and their views, and then you can have people who are advocating on behalf of it without necessarily even understanding that they are doing so. 
Like to be clear, I don't think that these people you've just mentioned, I don't think they're literally spies for China, but it's possible to be influenced into doing things that nonetheless are very much in the interest of our adversaries. One thing that that I think we should also clarify that I think Palmer brought up that a lot of people just really don't understand is that companies like Anduril, companies like Palantir, they are ultimately building deterrence. And I think like that's something that we kind of take for granted inside these companies that of course we are building these weapon systems, we're building important products for the DOD, but the reason we do it is because deterrence leads to times of peace. And that is the ultimate goal of technology. The ultimate goal of defense technology is to ensure that countries don't go to war. You know, and, and Palmer touched on this a little bit in terms of why software is so important, but that is the ultimate goal of these companies is to keep us safe, to ensure that boots never hit the ground and that we have peacetime. So, so I sometimes think that some of these organizations, they don't really understand that when you're, when you're building these new types of technologies, that they, you're building them in service of keeping Americans and our allies safe and making sure that we have times of prosperity. That is the perfect transition to a question that I've been thinking about since October 7th, which is the sort of working conception in Israel was that incredibly sophisticated military technology could protect it from let's just say, extremely adversarial enemies at its border, right? It spent a billion dollars on this high-tech border wall between the southern part of Israel and Gaza. They also had remote-controlled machine guns, ground sensors, drones. I mean, they had everything. And yet on that morning, a bunch of guys with guns on motorcycles and trucks and paragliders, very low-tech, completely overtook a country that many people understood to be the most militarily sophisticated country in the Middle East. What does that say about the limitations, I guess, of, of defense technology? Barry, I mean, I'd augment what Catherine said, because I totally agree. When If you want peace, you prepare for war, and that is how you have peace is you're strong. However, it's not just that we're pushing for peace. It's also that we have to get rid of the bad guys who want us dead. And so I, one thing the Palantir was built to do, frankly, was to not only prevent attacks, but to hunt down the terrorists who were preparing to hurt us and to hurt them first. And so Palantir, you know, was involved in targeting systems that eliminated many thousands of critical terrorists, eliminated and captured many more than that. And that was a big part of the goal is let's use our advantage information technology to stop them from lashing out at us, to stop them from hurting us. And I think, frankly, Israel was a little bit naive. If there are people out there who are preparing to kill you, you have to get them. And Israel knew that from its history. I think Israel was obviously proven to not have been, you know, cautious enough. It should have gone at these people trying to get them and should have taken them out ahead of time. What can we learn from the failure, like not just the failure of that date, but the ongoing failure, given that there are still 136 hostages? There's two things that I would take away from October 7th. First of all, it's true that they had a lot of technology, but a lot of the things you mentioned around the robots and the drones and the cameras, a lot of that was actually quite new and not necessarily fielded in large numbers, right? Like the IDF is not training every person to use robots and drones as part of their combat tactics. Like the, the things you're mentioning are kind of the, the, the cutting edge of what they're deploying, but they haven't gotten to the point where everyone's using them in the same way they're using, let's say, you know, a, a rifle. I genuinely believe that if you were to jump 20 years into the future, an attack like the one that took place in Israel would actually be impossible. Like the, the technologies already exist to make those types of paramotor attacks actually impossible. The technology already exists to make the types of tunnels that we saw actually impossible. And I think that that might have been one of the reasons that Hamas moved. I think they wanted to move before these technologies made these lower tech vectors 
viable. And so I, I think there, there's a lesson in that, by the way, with China as well. China's looking at Taiwan and thinking, what do we need to do to make sure we move before advances in US technology make that movement impossible? I know they're quite worried about that. The other thing that I would keep in mind, yes, they were low tech attacks. I give a little more credit to Israel than some people do in that you gotta remember, Hamas is not this ragtag group. The leaders of Hamas are literally billionaires. They are embedded with some of the most technologically sophisticated actors in not only the region, but the world. And so, yes, it's a low-tech approach, but a lot of it was informed by high-end intelligence, high-end data gathering, high-end technology that they were either provided with or intelligence they were provided with from other high-tech nations. And so I, I think... The media narrative has been, look at these ragtag guys who kind of just rolled in. The way I would look at it is more, it's the kind of James Bond approach where he uses gadgets and gizmos to find just the right moment to just walk down the hallway in his tuxedo and get through, multiplied by thousands of people. And they really found a lot of holes that I think they never would have found on their own or that were only there ever so briefly. And so that's something that's worth remembering. But I guess the, the optimist in me says, Border security is not a pipe dream. Like the idea that you can prevent people from walking across your border, driving across your border, and gliding across your border, people like to pretend that it's impossible and that it's just this political problem that will never be solved. I reject that. Technology will solve that problem. Borders will become technologically impenetrable according only to the amount of will we put towards it in like the next, call it seven to 10 years. After the break, what's the greater threat to America? China or an elite class that doesn't believe in America itself? Stay with us. Hi, Honestly listeners. If you hear some weird sounds in the background, it's because I'm crouched in a van in the middle of Tel Aviv in a rainstorm on my way to the airport. But I needed to record this ad because I have something really exciting to tell you about. And that is the first ever free press documentary. It's out right now, and it's called American Miseducation. In the film, free press reporter Olivia Rheingold explores the origins of the anti-Semitism that's exploded across America in recent months. As you well know, if you read our reporting or listen to this podcast, this new anti-Semitism doesn't come from far-right extremists. It comes from typically progressive left-wing students and faculty at America's most prestigious universities. How has that happened? How have American universities been transformed from within? How have American colleges moved so far from the values that created our free society, like tolerance and liberalism, and replaced those values with things like identity politics and even apologies for violence? Olivia visited them to find out. To watch the film, check out our YouTube channel or subscribe to the free press at thefp.com. That's T-H-E-F-P.com. Last, but most importantly, American Miseducation was made possible through our partnership with the Jack Miller Center for Teaching America's Founding Principles in History. The Jack Miller Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that's building a movement of civic educators who are determined to reach the next generation with the principles of freedom, tolerance, and human dignity that lie at the very heart of the American political tradition. To get involved and learn more about what they do, visit jackmillercenter.org. 
Listeners have honestly have probably heard me talk about Sapir, a quarterly journal edited by my friend and former colleague Brett Stevens, and for good reason. Sapir is home to thoughtful, heterodox analysis on topics we care a lot about on this show, foreign policy, domestic policy, education, the Middle East, and much more. With Israel at war and rising anti-Semitism in the West, including at our most elite universities, Sapir is more important than ever. Its current issue, called Friends and Foes, takes a deep, hard look at the people and principles that we can count on to counteract dangerous cultural and political trends near and far, and those that we can't. I recommend Danielle Haas's article on the human rights establishment. Haas was a senior editor at Human Rights Watch for over a decade, and she offers an intimate inside view of how human rights NGOs have lost their way and how far they have strayed from their founding missions. Check that essay out, along with the rest of Sapir's current friends and foes issue at sapirjournal.org slash honestly. That's S-A-P-I-R journal.org forward slash honestly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I wonder how you each think about the kind of power that you have. There's been obviously a huge amount of attention on Elon Musk and Starlink, both the role of Starlink in Ukraine, how he offered it to Ukraine, and then he didn't, and then he did, and then a similar thing happened in Gaza, and it was this kind of back and forth, and all of it sort of, for me, leveled up to this insight of, oh my God, this individual with this incredibly powerful technology in some ways has more influence and power than arguably the U.S. government actually does. My friend Jacob Siegel talked about how non-state kingmakers are redefining the scope of warfare through their direct intervention. How do you each grapple with the kind of power that you're accruing, whether through Anderil or Palantir or KB, the kinds of things that A16Z funds? I mean, one of the things we do is we make really clear that we are going to outsource most of our decision-making to the United States government and to the democratically elected leaders who do who, who are in charge of making these decisions. We get asked all the time, would you sell to this country? Would you operate in this region? Would you contribute to this war? And my answer consistently has been and has to be, we will do what the United States government tells us needs to be done. And we should not have a country where our de facto foreign policy is determined by a handful of corporate executives. That is not a tenable situation. And it, it makes us far too easy to compromise. It makes us far too easy to influence. We should be outsourcing these decisions to people who are elected and then held accountable for the decisions that they make by the electorate. And there's also a lot of times where we'll get asked to do things that maybe we don't have enough information to know one way or the other what to make of it. But we need to trust that the people are making the right decisions. You know, One example is uh, Years ago, there was a bunch of controversy over a particular nation getting an air defense system delivered to them by the United States. We were saying, oh my God, I can't believe that they did this. I can't believe they helped this country that has committed all these human rights violations, blah, 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 blah. And then it came out much later that the reason that that was being provided was to protect 
U.S. aircraft that were armed with nuclear weapons that were being stored at that airfield. And looking back, there's no way that the the company could have known that. There was no way they could really defend themselves. But I feel like people also need to extend a little bit of understanding to these companies and say, when they are doing something, it's not like the government can go to them and say, here's exactly why you're doing it, how it's being used. Now, please, you make a call as to whether you think that that's acceptable or not, because that's not how the real world works. It's not how it should work. So I'm a big fan of distributing that responsibility rather than concentrating it. Yeah, Barry, I'm, I'm exhausted by these like, ridiculous attacks, frankly. I totally agree with Palmer. I agree with my co-founder, Alex Karp, the CEO of Palantir, that it's obviously not up to like a small group of of people with very different views of the world to decide how this should be done. It should be up to the U.S. government. I'll give you one example. I get protested a lot for helping put kids in cages is one thing that I've been accused of from having been a founder of Palantir. And the actual story is that President Obama like, did a huge contract with his administration with Palantir at, at ICE, which stands for you know, Immigration Customs Enforcement. And, uh, and then when President Trump became president, he was using the technology to do things he wanted to do on the border that frankly weren't that different. And then, of course, got accused of doing horrible things on the border, and therefore they accuse us of working with them. And by the way, Biden's now doing this too, and is doing the same thing with us. But while Trump was president, because they didn't like him, and I'm not saying I love him, but because they didn't like him, suddenly we're the bad guy for not turning off our contract with the U.S. government. That's just totally insane. Of course, you're not going to turn off your contract with the U.S. government in these situations. And I, I think, you know, just so many protests around this. And it's, it's just like these people are just so naive. It's very frustrating. Imagine if you couldn't have any program that lasted longer than a single White House administration. It'd be a disaster for our country. That's why defense is and has been bipartisan. That's why the Pentagon is so clear that defense is nonpartisan. And so, yeah, it's, it's not just that we shouldn't pull back when there's criticism of this kind. We have to be resilient in the face of it and explain to people that it's important to, again, outsource these decisions to government. If you don't like what's being done, then elect different people. Don't go to CEOs and demand that they take control of U.S. military and foreign policy. Let's spend the last little bit of time we have together talking about bit about the threats, both foreign and domestic, that America faces. It's clear to me that there's sort of two key threats right now to the Pax Americana. One is that it's under threat from China and Russia and Iran and the so-called axis of resistance. That's obvious. But also that it's under threat internally by a lot of people, including a lot of elite influential people who either believe that American power is necessarily bad or want us somehow to go back to a great power conflict. They don't think that, that the world is better off with America as, as, as the world's hegemon. And I'd love sort of just quickly to run through each of you and ask you which one, if you can answer this, which one is a bigger threat? Like which one do you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about? Is it our leadership here at home that, or at least many people in positions of power that don't seem to get it? Or, or is it China that is really keeping you up in the middle of the night? I mean, they're obviously both threats. I would definitely say it's the leadership at home and it's the culture here at home that scares me. It's it's millions of bureaucrats that are unaccountable. It's cultures of incompetence. It's cultures that prioritize virtue signaling over merit and over competence, which is terrifying. Like There's you know, so much of the defense industrial complex. The money goes towards things based on who they're friends with, have they proven that they have the right minority or gender status, have they proven they've virtue signal in the right way and donated to the right people? Are they playing the game 
properly to come across as the thing that DC wants to support. And this is not to say that there aren't great bipartisan defense leaders in Congress, in the DOD, who want to do the right thing and who are trying to do the right thing. But I think this like just, our country in general has this crisis of incompetence and, and that's what we're going to need to fix if we're going to make, get this right, because we have the ability to do this right. And what I care most about is that the best ideas can win. If, like, are you going to let the best things win or are you not going to let the best things win? And that's the biggest question right now here. And, and if, if we can be competent, America will be safe. Palmer? Strong agree. I am, of course, concerned about China, concerned about external threats. But, you know, there's the old saw about, you know, worrying about the things you can change and the things you can't change. I can't change China. I can't make them less threatening directly. But where we do have power is in choosing different leadership, in changing our own bureaucracy. And so that's the thing that I think we especially need to focus on, the things that we can do right. And I think that very much is fixing the bureaucracy. I'd add to that, Joe, not just our bureaucracy now, but the upcoming bureaucracy. Things have been getting worse on this front continuously every year for decades. And so like, this sounds a little nuts, but I think some of the bureaucrats who have been in power for a very long time, at least they got into power back in a time where where you know they were in it because they were competent or did it for the right reasons. It's actually this newest generation that's coming up in this virtue signaling world, in this DEI world. Like that's actually one of the things I'm I'm most concerned about is that you have the old guard become this new or mid guard and that we're even worse off than we are now. KB I think the biggest threat is the nihilistic culture that says it is not worth your time to build new things. And it's not just saying it against, you know, the people who move to Silicon Valley and want to build a company and find out that the regulator is squashing them or the memes are saying that it's going to be dangerous to build what they're building. It's also saying it to small business owners across America that it's not worth your time to build a small business, telling, you know, young families it's not worth your time to have kids. Basically, an anti-growth message that says none of this is worth your time, the culture is dead, and, and, and you shouldn't be doing anything. I think so many of these cultural memes that are trying to destroy the institutions that pin America together are actually are, are much more insidious, and they're coming from nation states that hate us, and they're coming from people that do not want to see America be successful. So I actually do, I, I worry deeply about the culture. I don't think it's just people who attack tech or defense tech or national security. I think it's attacking anyone who is optimistic about the future of this country and who wants to see the institutions in this country flourish. Few other threats I want to go through. One is the border. And I have to say, I'm guilty of being someone that never paid attention to that issue, feel like I've shifted a tremendous amount since October 7th at looking really at what's going on there, at the fact that there were 2.4 million people apprehended at our southern border last year. It seems to me like it's a basic issue that actually shouldn't be partisan. First of all, why is, is the border so porous? It's obvious to me that this is an incredible liability for a weakened president in an election year. Do you guys have any insight into why this is happening? Andrew does a lot of work with Customs and Border Protection. It was actually one of our first and largest now customers. And I'm really proud of the work that we do with them. October 7th really puts into stark relief the fact that border security is a separate problem from immigration policy and people fully conflate the two. Their understanding is, you know, oh, well, if we want to let more people immigrate, that means we have less border security. And if we want to have fewer people, we need stronger border security. They're separate things. Even if your immigration policy is to allow anyone to walk into the country and get a passport out of a vending machine, you still need to know whether weapons, drugs, terrorists, cash, 
are moving back and forth across your borders. You need to know if people are watching your country, if they're invading your country, if they're preparing to invade your country, whether it's economically, militarily, or ideologically, or otherwise. And so border security is different from immigration policy, but I'd say the reason that you see the problems now is because the public has conflated the two, and that's kind of paralyzed, I think, particularly the Democratic Party. They've been unable to push for border security because their base thinks that that means that they're violating their commitments on immigration policy. And what you're seeing happen right now is the aftermath of decades of making that decision over and over. So Andrew makes autonomous systems that help detect illegal crossings between ports of entry. So not the people who are walking up to a port of entry and saying, I'm filing for asylum. The people who are trying to sneak themselves or things into the country, whether it's sex traffickers, drug traffickers, weapons traffickers, uh, you who are who are trying to cross in the middle of nowhere where there's a little bit less eyes. And we, we build sensor systems powered by AI that detect those things and direct border patrol to them. These technologies could have locked down our border a decade ago. We could have a fully controlled border. Again, people talk about, oh, you'll never solve border security, but you can make it better. I reject that. I am a huge optimist. You can have a border that is secure if that's what you want to have. And that hasn't been what politicians wanted. That's the real problem. It's not tech, it's will. KB or Joe, like any insight into the politics of the border right now, it just seems like such a losing issue. And it's sort of incomprehensible to me that the Biden administration wouldn't want to at least appear as if they are doing something serious about it in an election year. They're literally suing us here in Texas to stop us from blocking things. Like you literally had a thing where the governor of Texas put in you know mesh barriers so that people couldn't get across. And then they tried, went in and cut them. And the Supreme Court said, no, you're not allowed to go in and cut them. And so now they went in and they raised them up because that wasn't what the court said. It's, it's, it's comical here right now, Barry. I, I, try, I try not to be too partisan on these things. It's pretty obvious that there's like an extreme far left wing of the party that just captured this area and decided this is what we stand for. Uh, we are not going to let you block these people from coming in. And it's obvious to me that they want future votes. This is what Elon's tweeted about. I think that's pretty clear if they look at it, that people coming from these areas tend to be a little more collectivist. They tend to probably vote in the left in the future. Uh, I, I think this is a political calculation from an extreme left with, with how they want to influence our country. And I think they're breaking the law to do it, and it's insane to me. So that, that's what we're dealing with. I'd like to get a sense of how dark each of your casts of mind are when you think about the potential of sort of a bigger world conflict. Neil Ferguson's talked a lot about how we're in sort of the new Cold War and there are all of these hotspots and how history is speeding up. I spoke to Walter Russell Mead recently and he talked about sort of a world spinning out of control. And on, on some of my darker nights, that's how I feel. Whether you want to talk about the question of China moving against Taiwan or just more generally, as you're thinking about the next year, the next few years, we have Ukraine, we have Gaza, we have a sort of unannounced war with Iran that's happening right now via Houthi pirates, essentially, in the Red Sea that's way more serious than I think most Americans understand. I would love each of you to just tackle the question of global threats and how we're poised to stand up to them. I'm very optimistic, partly because there are things that we are building at Anderil that are responsive to some of these problems, and also because I know some of the things that are coming down the pipe that are going to help solve these problems. I think the conflicts that you're seeing right now are an artifact of the fact that we've built 
the wrong military. We've built the wrong technology. We've built the wrong tools. And so we don't like when you when conflict happens, it's because one side thinks that they are going to come out ahead. They think that they're going to win. Conflict really only happens when one side or both believe that they can win. If both sides understand that uh, there's going to be a, a preordained winner, war typically doesn't happen. And then you fall into economic and diplomatic struggles. Of course, there's exceptions. There's like jihadists who are willing to fight wars for ideological reasons that they know that they cannot win militarily. But aside from that, there's a lot of recognition, I think, that the reason you're seeing these conflicts is because we didn't build the things that were capable of deterring these fights. The, why are we worried about China invading Taiwan? Because we haven't built the tools that the United States could use to make that impossible. China is able to look at the tools we have and say, oh, yeah, I I think we can do it. I think we can do it even if the U.S. is willing to defend Taiwan. And the mirror of that is I think we are building the right tools going forward. It's a race against the clock to build these things as fast as possible so that we can do it before these invasions take place, before these conflicts escalate. But I'm optimistic that there's a recognition that we need to build new tools at massive scale that make these conflicts turning into World War III impossible. I just want to echo Palmer. I am incredibly optimistic. If you had asked me this question you know, five, seven years ago, when we invested in 2017, the number of people who laughed at people who invested in Andrew, the number of people who, who said really nasty things about, you know, warmongering, you know, very horrible insults, people who would not work with you because they believed that you were in the wrong. They believed that you were, you know, verging on evil. There was a lot of hate towards anyone who wanted to work with the Department of Defense. And now if you want to dose of optimism, you know, go to El Segundo, go to Los Angeles and look at the people who are building. These are young kids. These are, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds with massive American flags having contests about who can have the biggest American flag in their factory. Like that did not exist five years ago. So I, I think the, the optimism and enthusiasm because Andural and Palantir and SpaceX have been so successful as companies. And because there's a host of founders on the way that you're going to know the names of in a couple of years because their companies have been successful, like that is leading to the really an American renaissance of manufacturing, an American renaissance of defense tech that I think is going to make us victorious in this. But it's nascent, it's new. The Department of Defense has to you know, make some big swings in terms of being able to procure these technologies. But I feel very, very confident in a way that you know, a couple of years ago, it looked a lot more bleak. Joe. Yeah, I actually think there's certain ways that we're moving more towards pro-defensive again that are very good, that are very bad for aggressors. Uh, obviously, it's really important to get these things out there as quickly as we can. It's refreshing to hear your optimism. I think most Americans, though, don't share it. And, and it's not that they don't share it because they're not on the bleeding edge of this technology in the way you are, but because they look at the past 20 years of American foreign policy and draw the lesson that American power has been feckless, detrimental, wasteful, inefficient. I could go on with the adjectives. And this is not like a left-right problem. It's, you know, you see sort of the turn inward and the turn toward isolationism, certainly among Democrats, but definitely among, you know, the base of voters in the Republican Party who generally are sort of America, fuck yeah, America power people. How do you contend with that sort of widespread cultural shift that has happened in American life? Well, well, well I'll say it, Barry. We should have fired a lot of people around what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. We, we wasted trillions of dollars in Afghanistan without a clear mission. 
We have a lot of people who are considered heroes who are still very influential, who frankly, I think, didn't have very good leadership and didn't make it clear what they were trying to get done and, and frankly failed. And you're not supposed to say this if you work with the DOD, so I think Palmer should be more careful what he says. But I think it's a shame and it's embarrassing what we did over the Middle East. And I think we wasted a ton of money, and I think people are right to be skeptical of the bureaucracy that runs a lot of our, our, our DOD right now because they have done some pretty terrible things. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be strong enough to deter the bad guys. It does mean we should be a lot more careful about exactly what we set to do when we go out internationally. I don't think we should be going out internationally and hanging around there and spending tons of money and then giving away free helicopters when we leave to the bad guys. We should probably plan it differently next time. Catherine and Joe, in the things that you both invest in, you talk about sort of investing for the sake of the West. Catherine, you've called that strategy American dynamism. In a speech you gave earlier this year, or I guess it was last year now, you said this, we don't win a war against bad ideologies unless we know who we are and what we stand for and where we're headed. And if we lose this silent war, the ultimate war for American ideals, it's not because we don't have the know-how to build missiles and hypersonics and attributable systems and drone swarms. It will be because we doubt our inheritance, because we doubt the beauty and nobility of what we're building, because we doubt that American dynamism is true and the key to a safer, more prosperous civilization. I'd love for you to just build on that a little bit for me, and maybe the answer to it sort of implicitly already in this conversation, which is sort of make American dynamism cool again, you know, through the 18 and 19-year-olds that are working at places like Anderil or Palantir. But I wondered if you or Joe sort of wanted to expand on this idea and, and maybe give listeners the white pill, so to speak. Yeah, I talk about what Alexis de Tocqueville said about what makes America so special. And it is this, this enthusiasm, this optimism, this belief that you can do anything. There is an American sentiment that has existed in this country since its founding, that we build new things and we always take risk and we're not afraid of risk. And yes, some people lose. And actually the, the quote that I wish I had in front of me is basically some people will lose in, in the American experiment. Some people will build businesses that fail, but America always benefits from that innovative spirit, from that hustle spirit, from that wanting to create new things. And, you know, we see it, you know, I, I say tech is sort of a, a petri dish of this American experience. It's how we build new technologies, but it's not just tech. Like building a family is in spirit of American dynamism. You know, building a small business that's not venture back, where you're building something for your community that your customers love. This is what underpins the American experiment and which keeps us at the forefront, that keeps us as the hegemonic power, is the spirit to continuously build. And again, I think the biggest thing that has happened that is dangerous is to convince young people, to convince our regulators that building is not a good thing, to convince people that growth is bad. Growth is life. Dynamism is life. It underpins the American experience. And so that is the thing that I worry about is that we're in some ways we're believing these lies, these doomer memes that we have to slow down, that we can't innovate, that innovation is bad, that tech is bad, that owning a business is bad, that building a family is bad. All of those are lies. What is the core of the American experience? It is building new things for your community. It is building in, in the spirit of serving your country. It is, it is building for others. And it is that outward focus that has made America the most exceptional country in the history of the world. Palmer Lucky, Catherine Boyle, and Joe Lonsdale, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Barry. Thanks so much, Barry. Thanks for listening. If you had never heard of Catherine Boyle, Joe Lonsdale, or Palmer Lucky before, I hope you found them as provocative and as interesting as I did. 
Maybe you thought what they said was fascinating. Maybe you thought it was out there. Maybe you were incredibly pissed off. Share this conversation with your friends and family and use it to have a conversation of your own. Last but not least, if you want to support the great journalism that we do here on Honestly and in the free press more generally, there's just one way to do it. It's by going to our website, thefp.com, T-H-E-F-P.com, and becoming a subscriber today. It's only $8 a month, and we think the value is well worth it. We'll see you next time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.